Welcome to the East Career Podcast, brought to you by the East Section of Career Development. I'm Brad Dennis from Vanderbilt University. In this session, we're pleased to have Dr. Brett Christmas and Mary Alice Gulledge from Carolina's Medical Center here today to discuss incorporating physician extenders and advanced practice providers into your practice. Dr. Christmas is the current East Treasurer and a member of the East Board of Directors. He is an Associate Professor of Surgery at Carolina's Medical Center. Uh, prior to coming to Carolinas, he uh, received a surgical training and fellowship at the University of Louisville. Uh, Mary Alice is the lead uh, trauma nurse practitioner at Carolinas Medical Center for the past four years. She has been at Carolinas Medical Center for over 19 years now. Uh, she is a uh, ACNP and a doctorate of nursing practice um, that she received two years ago. Thank you both for joining us today. Sure. Great. Thank you for having us, Brad. Yeah. Um, so why don't we get started? Uh, talk to me about uh, physician extenders and advanced practice providers. W what exactly are the differences in the different types, and, and do they have the same privileges everywhere? Yeah, Brad. So, um, you know, when we actually uh, look at this, there's there's been a, a you know a lot of discussion over the last several years about what these advanced practice providers, advanced clinical practitioners, and and physician extenders, and we've we've kind of fallen out of favor with the term of physician extenders because over the years we figured out it truly truly didn't define what they what they've really done. Really, what what these providers are, or they are. They are individuals within our practices, our systems, who aren't physicians, but they perform many of the medical activities that, that physicians typically perform. Um, most often you have physician assistants or nurse practitioners, but in a lot of cases this even even rolls over into to, to people from athletic trainers to interventional radiology technicians. And when you actually look at, at our hospital system, what we've kind of come to do is use the term advanced clinical practitioner or, or ACP, and we look at these as, as individuals, professionals that can provide care and treatment while working under the supervision of a physician but aren't necessarily a, a physician themselves. And, um, you know, we have privileging processes and everything in, in place for this group, and I'll let Mary Alice speak to that a little more since she, she deals with it more on a week-to-week -week basis. Sure, sure. Um, and just to kind of dovetail on what Dr. Christmas just said, physician extenders can be a term that's just pretty broad and global that I think a lot of laypersons use and maybe might be confused that, um, you know, an athletic trainer might be a nurse practitioner or a PA. So that's why we kind of move toward advanced care or advanced clinical practitioner or as um, other people call them, advanced practice providers. Um, but in terms of actual privileging, that's um, basically – the scope of practice and the content of your patient care services that you're going to provide, and it's um, um, performed by the individual organization or um, based on each provider um, within your group, and it's based on your um, credentials and your past performance. So um, really your privileging could vary state by state and from within your own organization just based on your background and training. Um, so the urgent care PAs would not have the same um, uh, privilege, uh, privileging and scope of practice that the ACPs have um, that are working inpatient as hospitalists. Cool. Excellent. So what sort of things are uh, advanced care providers uh, allowed to do within their scope of practice? So if you if you look within our system, it's uh, uh, our providers really kind of maintain a full range of privileges 
based upon their certification and, and licensure. The uh, you know fact is that, that PAs have been in practice since the 1960s, and, and NP programs popped up around the around the same time. Uh, you know, scope of a, a physician's assistant really kind of corresponds to their supervising uh, physicians and whatever their state state laws are. And if you look at at, at our MPs. We have collaborative practice agreements with the physicians and, and our nurse practitioners and PAs do everything from assist with trauma resuscitations, daily clinical care, to ICU management, uh, assisting with procedures, and really we try and let them practice to the extent of their licensure within within our system. All of that being said, they're doing all of these all of these skills under supervising supervising physicians. And I think what the you know the biggest biggest question that, that comes into it a lot of places is what the individual institutions will privilege and credential their their advanced practice providers to uh to cover. And I think from you know from our standpoint that's uh that's been a real um battle if you will to get people to truly understand the functionality of these providers and what they can they can add to your practice. Yeah, uh, you know, kind of dovetailing with what Dr. Christmas is saying, we have a certain set of core privileges which might be specific to our general surgery um, providers. You know, they would have the skills that you would say would be consistent with a surgical practice, um, you know, doing physical exams, diagnosing, treating, um, wound closure, suturing, that kind of thing. And then um, we have surgical critical care um, providers, and they have a more comprehensive core privilege list, which um, might include, like, risk assessment or appraisal and includes, um, you know, things that um, would be utilized to take care of complex patients who are critically ill um, and more advanced skills in terms of ACLS and uh, additional procedures. And then we have um, a whole set of skills, which a lot of people would would um, lump together as procedural skills maybe, um, or we call them non-core skills, and these are skills that must be performed under the supervision of a physician and their proctored. Um, and then we have um, three different types of supervision at our facility, general supervision, proximate, and also um, personal supervision, which just basically is the, um, the ability to perform a procedure if the physician is in-house or um, right next to you versus outside of the building and just under your um, you know, under your state law and your um, hospital bylaws. Um, and it, you know, it includes things, um, for example, a placing a chest tube or putting in a central line um, would be proximate supervision. So Dr. Christmas could be in the operating room, and if I've been checked off on my skills and I've been proctored that I'm competent to perform the skill, I can perform these procedures as long as he's close by where he can be available if needed versus having to be right at the bedside for um, personal supervision as in if we perform a bronchoscopy. Um, does that kind of help? Yeah, yeah. So that's that's somewhat similar to the resident attending relationship. Is that right? I'll let Dr. I would say it's, um, yeah. it's, uh, it's very similar to the to the 
to the resident relationship that that we have, and I think um, you know it's kind of a testament for where the discipline has evolved over the last several years, and kind of the the needs that have grown in all of our service lines. And if you if you look at our relationship with our practitioners. I would I would say it, in a lot of ways it's almost identical to to our resident physician relationship and the the educational experiences that we provide the the level of oversight that we provide and then uh, in all honesty going the other direction with our clinical expectations of what we expect from our practitioners and their knowledge base and their clinical management and procedural skills. It's not very different from what we expect from our resident physicians, to be quite honest. So that does sort of lead in a little bit to my next question, which is kind of how you guys have incorporated uh, ACPs into your practice at, at Carolinas and, and sort of what clinical settings, you know, they're used in. Yeah, so for, for us, we, we truly use our practitioners to mirror almost everything that our attending physicians do. It is, um, for instance, we have them rotating through our trauma services, ranging everything from resuscitations to floor management to critical care management, uh, surgical critical care service line that is really um, uh, basically attending physician and advanced practitioners um, embedded within that service line. And, you know, even more recently, expanding them into the emergency general surgery, acute care surgery, part of what we do. Um, and a lot of this is, has been necessitated by a lack of residence during this time. It, it is It is a workforce that we can take, we can train, we can deploy, and we've we've tried to mirror our advanced practitioner practice to what we do on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, and and just kind of jumping off of what Dr. Christmas said, um, you know, within CHS we use ACPs in the continuum of care. There's ACPs in primary care, urgent care, in the office, in the hospital-based settings, and and you know, under an ACP too, we also include the certified nurse midwives, which also also function in other areas um, within the system too, in the outpatient settings as well. Um, and but within our group, as Dr. Christmas mentioned, you know, we. Um, are involved at every phase of care, and our ACPs are given, um, our, our, I guess our job codes are are defined um, by, um, you know, what setting we're in. So a specialty care ACP has a different job code or um, title than an acute care high acuity nurse practitioner or PA. And so in our system, we have different levels of specialty and different levels of um, of high acuity pay and high acuity, um, um, you know, I guess practice settings. So um, with that, it kind of defines your area of expertise, and then also it um, there's like a ladder, uh, internal ladder for if you're moving between um, a lower acuity to a higher acuity, you would move up in our compensation ladder as well. Um, I guess to make it a little clearer. Um, like a specialty would be an inpatient setting that we have on the trauma service where we might have progressive care patients, but the high acuity ACPs can function in all those areas, but they're also functioning in critical care. So we have a, a handful of ACPs that function in uh, the specialty care area only, and then we have um, other ACPs who can cross over into specialty or just high or or also high acuity. Okay, excellent. Thank you. 
So sure. um, you kind of have alluded to this in some of the previous uh, discussions here, but but how have you all seen the role of the ACPs grow over the last few years, um, and, and how are, are, can they be used to help with not just resident staffing shortages, but, but attending physician staffing shortages as well? Yeah, sure. And, uh, you know, I'll kind of, kind of preface this with giving you a, um, you know, a 10-year history of where we are because we, um, we've now expanded our service lines to include 17, uh, advanced practitioners. And when I arrived, we, uh, we had three. So, uh, when you look similar to most institutions, you know, our service lines began to employ advanced practitioners following the 2003 implementation of resident duty hour restrictions, uh, not unlike any anybody else. But during that same time period, we initiated a surgical critical care service line, and at that time we had three providers, a much smaller patient census, and, and had coverage really Monday through Friday during the daytime. Um, and I think that's what most places start with when they begin building a program. Well, as we saw our patient census grow from four to six patients a day to approximately 18 to 20 on on the surgical critical care service, and at the same time watched our trauma service begin to expand, we we realized that that we were falling falling short with with the coverage. The attendings could can only do and, and cover so much, and with resident cutbacks and, and meeting all the 80 hour demands, uh, advanced practitioners truly became the where the area that we could expand and, and maintain the continuity and just. In all honesty, keep keep the service lines uh, afloat. So at first, what we did was expanded numbers to fully staff the surgical critical care service, since we had no residents on that service. And then we expanded the coverage to weekends, established a float position that was kind of a utility player that could then float between the services, assist with resuscitations, and then ultimately. What what happened is, is like most places, we realized that we truly needed a 24-hour presence in the in the ICU. I think many of us have found that we are taking care of of patients that are becoming sicker and sicker, and we've also got growing volumes and patient numbers at all of our tertiary, coordinary referral centers, and so we truly needed to have eyes and ears in the ICU 24 hours a day realizing that a lot of times the best thing is not having an off-service intern doing ICU call that night and that your in-house trauma attending is often taking care of multiple traumas or the next the next emergency general surgery case. So what we found is is we employed more advanced practitioners, but I think the key was that they weren't there to just take care of paperwork or do just ancillary things that we needed that we we allowed our group to truly practice to the extent of their licensure and, and training. And like I said before, this is everything from resuscitations, clinical coverage, all the way to, to ICU coverage and in procedures. And I think that that has been the you know the biggest thing and and that we've done to build is realizing where our shortages were and understanding that it was a lot easier to be able to recruit advanced practitioners and get the system to buy into it in a in a time when they were expanding their advanced practitioner base 
as opposed to being able to go out and actively recruit more physicians. And, and that's, uh, it's truly been a tremendous benefit for us in our system. Yeah, and as uh, Dr. Christmas was mentioning, you know, as the service lines built, as we added the surgical critical care, and as he mentioned, trying to cover new admissions to that service, if you were also covering trauma codes or assisting with other general surgery cases, um, the volume and the load has just became too much. So we just started off um, small. We started adding um, ACPs for weekend night coverage only on that service line, and then we kept adding on. So it was it was an evolution based on priorities um, and based on, you know, where the physicians felt like, I need this here now, and then we'll add on. So we once we decided where we were going to start, we were able to build on from there. It was just an evolution and a process, so because we didn't start off with, boom, you know, as we were growing, we had to slowly add people on, and we added service lines. And there was some nights that we didn't have coverage until we got everybody up to speed once we, you know, added people into the mix. Yeah. And I think one of the, you know, one of the big things that we did, too, that uh, that a lot of people may not really cross your mind is from the physician standpoint, we knew what we needed for adequate coverage, and we knew we weren't going to get there overnight. So you have to prioritize what you need and what is most important for your primary coverages, and then the other stuff falls in line. But when you do that, it's not looking at it, and and what you find is as a physician, you go, I'm going to put this person here, here, and here. It's developing your practitioner group in a manner that you look at them, and it's a two-way communication of us saying, we need these coverages, these are our priorities, and then letting that group figure out the coverages and, and come up with, you know, with ideas of how to create the schedules because they know their lifestyle and and what they can do and cover better than I would just like they don't know the physician schedule as well. So if you're able to create that kind of relationship with the group in the expansion and establish priorities, then both sides can figure out what they really need to do to take care of patients. Yeah, that's. I think that sounds eerily similar to our experience here at Vanderbilt, and I bet there's a lot of folks who can relate to that sort of have some short gaps, you know, in coverage and, and need to yeah. fill those, and, and the nurse practitioners and the advanced care providers have, have really been great uh, ways to fill those gaps. So um, that sounds very familiar. So how, how, do your, how do the ACPs interact with your faculty, and, and what sort of value in addition to those, you know, coverage gaps what other values do you feel they add to your practice? Well, for us, I'll, you know, I'll start off, and I know, it, like everything else, there are kind of, you know, two perceptions that um, that you always like to, to get from the relationship. And I think interacting with, with faculty, our residents rotate through on a monthly basis, just just like most other programs. And for us, it is not just a continuation of continuity on the floor for the patients, but it's a continuation of the clinical providers that are with us, that you've developed the relationship, they've, they've had extensive training, that you know that you can trust them, and you know that they are dedicated to that service line because they're not rotating away in a, in a month. This is their livelihood and what they're invested in, and then the other part of it is too that when when you develop that that kind of relationship, it extends beyond the day to day patient care and starts to roll over into 
you know, guideline development into research, into ongoing education, not just for residents and medical students, but to nursing staff and to everyone within the system about what you do. And I, I think that has been one of the, the great things to see is the relationship you develop as providers because they're truly partners of yours, not really dissimilar from what we have with the other physicians in our practice. Yeah, I think um, what Dr. Christmas is saying is so important because um, not saying that other people are not invested that are rotating, but because that is our primary job and we are invested, we are very engaged, we know the guidelines, we know how the process flows, we can, you know, help facilitate, we bridge gaps for things, um, or, you know, we can actually be a resource to help the residents too with um, education or orientation to the service lines. So we're kind of, we're the constant variable that's there in the background and can keep the flow going. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's a great point, you know, particularly like from the quality side of, of having that consistency, you know, people who know the guidelines, like you mentioned. I think that's a, that's yes. a really important point. Yeah. yeah. How about the interaction with the residents? you guys feel that, that the ACPs, you know, add or detract from resident education in what way? You know, I, that's interesting. Go ahead, Dr. C. I'm sorry. No, no I, uh, I think overall the, um, the relationship between our, our ACPs and our, our residents is, is a very collegial relationship. And uh, maybe what sets us aside from a few other centers is um, with the way things are structured, they're never really in direct competition you know, for what I would say of, you know, procedures or, or anything of of that standpoint. We actually have our APs responsible for, for leading the monthly resident orientation process. We put them in front of the residents from day one on the service and set the, the APs up as being leaders within the, the division and a resource for these residents that are going to rotate through on the service line, and I think that is, um, you know, that is a key. And when the residents come on, they this helps them view the ACPs as a resource, as somebody that if they have a question, they can always call one of the ACPs, and they will, you know, and they'll they'll be willing to to help. And I think one of the things you have to communicate from day one when the residents come on the service is that. The ACPs work with and for the physicians, and the residents work for the physicians, that you don't have the residents working for the ACPs or the ACPs working for the residents. That way there is there is no leadership ambiguity, that you don't have the two groups in direct confrontation. They're working alongside each other to take care of patients. Yeah, we're we're so intertwined because we are across all the continuums of care from the emergency room through, you know, the floor, progressive care, the intensive care unit, and including the surgical critical care service, which they're going to rotate to eventually, and they're going to be on surgical services where we're taking care of their patients. It does um, help create just a very collegial relationship. So I've never felt like there was competition. And like Dr. Christmas mentioned, we have so many procedures and so much work to do here. It's never an issue of, oh, they're going to get that chest tube or they're going to get that intubation because we're, there's enough to share the wealth. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, I think that, I think that, you know, Britt, I think your point about establishing, establishing 
you know, the relationship um, in terms of, you know, the, the uh, ACP, you know, works for the physician or with the physician and the residents work with the physician and not, you know, uh, so that everybody understands their role. I think that's a really important point in making sure that the team is cohesive for right, sure. Right. Yeah. So what sort of challenges have you all had with having, you know, the advanced practice providers in your clinical model and have you sort of addressed those? Yeah, I think our, our biggest challenges center around recruiting, training, and retaining. Um, you know, everybody believes when they come out that they're ready to practice and up to the task whenever we interview and hire. I've, I've seen the face so many times in, in my office and what we found is on multiple occasions, you know, our acuity and volume becomes overwhelming quite, quite quickly. Um, and it's not always honest or not always easy to find the practitioners that have the skill set you need to run the service on. So once we recruit and bring them in, they go through an extensive training process. And no matter where we've brought in our practitioners from, we've seen a huge learning curve for them to catch up. And with, to be quite honest, what are our clinical expectations and, and needs? I think the, you know, the other part is really managing all of the personalities within the, within the group. And for us, Mary Alice has done a, a tremendous job with that over the last several years. Um, I think it's incredibly important that you've got to designate a lead ACP when your group gets large enough, and usually that number seems to be somewhere between six and eight, because um, what happens is you've got concerns from the advanced practitioner group that arise and come up, and you've got concerns from the physician group that come down, and so between the two, you need a physician liaison and a lead ACP that can be the voice kind of from both sides because if if you don't and you get six different opinions coming one direction and six coming the other direction, it's very easy to lose focus on 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 what the overall goals are and maintaining you know uniformity within the group. And I think once you you get big enough, you really have to have a lead from both ends so that what are little small issues from both directions can be sorted out without affecting the rest of the group because if it becomes a bigger issue, then you bring out all the personalities on both ends. And I think it is so important to have people that can sit down, come to the table and you know, like Mary Alice, if there are concerns with the advanced uh, advanced practitioners, she can come into a faculty meeting and be their spokesperson for everybody, communicate those issues without bringing all the personalities to a table. And same same for us. We have physician issues. You know, it, it's we can come back to Mary Alice and, and sit down and say, this is what we need to work on. But I think that's one of the biggest challenges is truly managing the personalities in your group, especially as you start to grow, because when you start getting beyond eight practitioners, it's, uh, it's just like any other leadership role, I think. Yeah, I think, and um, adding to that, you know, having been a physician liaison, so Dr. Christmas is that, that role for us, and that works great for us because the two of us talk frequently. If there's any issues, we're available to each other. We can vet things through each other, and it's very helpful for me to get, you know, physician input on issues where maybe I'm not seeing the big picture and vice versa so that we can figure out plans of action. Um, and, 
you know, and go from there to disseminate it. But in terms of recruiting and training, fortunately, we have a fellowship program now here for advanced care practitioners with a critical care component. So we're bringing in um, essentially recruits, I guess you would say, but they're with our service line for an entire year doing the fellowship. So um, we're adding on to that next year, and um, the physicians are also expanding their critical care fellowship. So that's one way we're addressing just recruiting because we're growing so fast that we're we've never filled positions before we've you know said oh we need this service line or that service line yeah interesting so i think one of the areas where some practices may have you know some issues is the area of, of physician billing um and mm -hmm. and how to balance the presence of the advanced practice practitioners um on physician billing so how how, have, how has the presence of ACPs affected physician billing, and how do you guys overcome this or work within this model, I suppose? Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, for us, uh, there are a couple of different models out there which, which affect the billing. There are, um, you know, and, and the one that I won't speak to but everybody needs to know that are out there are the situations where you've got your advanced practitioners that are hired by the hospital, but then you have a private practice physician group. So that's a different model than what we have, and, and so I can't really comment on that one, but I can say that within our group, we are all employees of the hospital. So the advanced practitioners and physicians were all paid by the same, you know, the same company, we're in the same group, but we take our advanced practitioners and, and look at them and say, you can and should be able to bill independently for, for your services. I think one of the biggest issues is dealing with administration regarding production expectations. A lot of places have, have moved toward, you know, RVU incentives, and and when you, you really look at that, the opinion that we've maintained is that we don't hold our advanced practitioners to production expectations. The reality is, uh, I think in our model, that needs to be monitored by the practitioners themselves and the physician group, really to hold hold them accountable, you know, hold your peers accountable for the workload that you're doing. And in our case, the last thing we want to do is to put our advanced practitioners and physicians in direct competition for production incentives, because to be quite honest, that would completely destroy the team concept that we've worked so hard to build over over the last many years. So what we did is, um, you know, knowing that this was an issue, our compromise with our administration has been for the physician group to essentially accept an RVU tax for our advanced practitioners that we employ on our on our services. Um, you know, we know that all advanced practitioners have to have a supervising physician, so we're therefore overseeing them and their billing and their medical questions anyway. And in doing that, we're able to track the approximate total of what our group's billing was that was done by the advanced practitioners. And we told administration that, okay, we would accept the tax against our production incentives to offset the cost of our ACPs, and, and you know, that way they're recouping, I guess the system, you could say, is recouping a little bit of, of the salary support that they're providing. Um, ultimately, you know, we know the value of our team, and we felt that this compromise was really essential to keep us all oriented toward the, toward the goal of patient care rather than putting your physicians and your ACPs in direct competition for billing and seeing patients. That, uh, you know, that just, that just would not, 
would not go with with our whole team concept. Yeah, and if we see a patient, we're going to bill for that completely, and that's not ever, um, it's never been an issue for us. We have compliance people that are behind us, too, checking to make sure that we're, you know, like every hospital does, you know, make sure you're in compliance with the regulations. But it's our, if we're seeing the patient, we're going to bill for it, it's, you know, um, it's at a lesser rate than if the physician saw them, but that is a compromise the system has to make, too, in order to have your physician operating in the OR or, you know, assisting another physician or um, so that we can be boots on the ground and seeing your post-op patients or the other kinds of things that um, that make sense to utilize us to uh, increase your productivity as well. Yeah. No, I think those are excellent points, and I certainly think the point about creating a model that doesn't put the two groups in direct competition is essential. I think that's absolutely key. Great. Yes. Well, and I, I think another part that we realized too is once we really, because in the in the beginning, our advanced practitioners weren't weren't billing for all of the services and and everything that that they were doing. When you're trying to to come out of the box and grow your program, and what we realized, especially when we expanded to 24/7 coverage and had an advanced practitioner in that ICU 24 hours a day and you start looking at the amount of critical care that is actually provided in an ongoing basis that as the night call attending, I wouldn't have been up there for, you know, 30, 40 minutes straight and capturing the critical care billing because I would, you know, I would, I would be in the OR or the next trauma code. And what you find is once they really get up to speed on their billing and just like us, they can bill for critical care time and patient care. And, and so we found that we were actually capturing more billing once we we really got that up to speed and had them fully billing on on their own than we were in the first place, which is a further justification for administration to show their value and their worth and what it actually means to service line revenue. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, how about your role in in uh, having uh, advanced practice providers? What's the attending physician or the surgeon's role in this uh, model? So for us, it, um, our role kind of, it, it varies depending upon the service line that we're, we're covering. Um, for instance, if I'm day call and I have, uh, trauma resuscitations, my, my primary survey and, and exam is done by one of my advanced practitioners downstairs in the trauma bay while one of us is actually running the code. So in in that situation, you don't have advanced practitioners billing, but they are they are there almost in the function of you know an intern or a primary assessor, all the way up to our surgical critical care service line where we have our two advanced practitioners on the ground every day that are going around seeing patients and billing for them and and the ones they're primarily taking care of. And then those patients where I'm going and, and usually spend more of my time and judgment skills with the higher acuity patients that are going to truly need the, the physician time and the real critical care time. And that being said, those are the ones where I am primarily seeing the patient making the higher level decisions but at the same time, I am supervising and at least know and am, have direct oversight on all of those patients that my advanced practitioners are seeing 
on that critical care service. Mm-hmm. Now, the weeks that say I'm trauma attending, I know I can go out and see my my floor patients with the resident uh, portion of what we're doing, but at the same time, I've got practitioners that are seeing other sections of the hospital that I know they are there, they are seeing, they are billing for those patients, and then if there are any questions or anybody they need me to see, any questions at all, I'm their supervising physician, they bring it to me, and I make sure that I go and follow up with any of those issues and and take care. So if you look at uh, our role with our advanced practitioners becomes, you know, either more direct or less direct, and a lot of times depending upon the acuity of the patients that we're managing. Yeah, and, you know, that obviously you need a lot of trust, too, So, um, and you develop that trust within, um, like, our physicians have a, you know, a strong trust in us out there managing patients and knowing that we will, we know our limitations, too. So if we're out there seeing our service line and we have questions, we know we need to circle back. And mm-hmm. and it's not to say that we're not running the list or, you know, checking off patients, but we're out there managing while they're doing things, too, so they have to have a level of trust in our competency. And sure. I think that's, um, you know, fostered over time and, and with that, you know, working relationship being built over time. Yeah, excellent. I agree. So um, we're running out of time here. So let's take the sort of the 30,000-foot view. What's the main message or piece of advice that you think every surgeon um, should know about advanced practice providers and and incorporating them into uh, their clinical practice? You know, I I think from from our discipline and what we do as trauma, critical care, acute care surgeons, everything we do involves a team, and that – Advanced practitioners are a valuable part of that team, and everybody can work together for the betterment of patient care. We have, you know, at Carolinas, we have tremendous pride in our practitioners, and and when they know that, they will constantly strive to get better and to and to come up to to what our expectations are for them. I really, I really think that with this group. You use them to practice to the extent of their licensure, and what you find is that you can you can mold some very successful practitioners and at the same time provide them with incredible job satisfaction because you're letting them use all of the skills that they wanted to develop. Yeah, and um, as Dr. Christmas said, developing your ACP is helping to develop them. We all come, we all come into a job with a certain level of skills, and then that gets developed and fostered. And um, for example, I'm, I feel as an ACP that I'm fairly involved with East, and that has been um, fostered by Dr. Christmas. You know, hey, this is what we need to do. Let's get our ACPs involved. We've had, we just published this past year a new critical care manual for um, advanced care practitioners, and you know, Dr. Christmas helped me with our co-authoring, and he's helped. Um, and Dr. Singh, one of our other attendings, is, was one of the collaborating physicians and editors for the book. So it's been where you're bringing along your people and fostering their professional development and growth too, and that f- further um, develops your relationships with each other as you're growing professionally, and it's being, you know, developed by your attending surgeon. Yeah, that's that's a great point. Um, so uh, on behalf of East uh, Career Development Section, I want to thank you both, Britt and Mary Alice. 
uh, for taking the time to speak with us today. Uh, again, I'm Brad Dennis, and I hope you enjoyed the program. When you find a minute of time, please visit the EAST website at www.east.org for more EAST career podcasts and other valuable information. Great. Thank you very much for having us. Thanks, Brett. Yeah, hey, quick question before we finish. Christine, did you have anything? No, very good. Thanks to the both of you very much for uh, for doing this. Yeah. Oh, uh, one thing I wanted to ask, Mary Alice, you, yes, you mentioned sort of right at the end there about um, – the NPs being involved in East, what other sort of societies, you know, are you guys uh, involved in, or, or where do you think there's some good opportunities for uh, trauma nurse practitioners? Um, sure. So uh, a lot of our nurse practitioners are heavy on the critical care side of the house, too, so they're very involved with SCCM. And then um, even with the local, um, like, nurse, nursing boards, like I'm very involved in the North Carolina Nursing Association and the DNT Council through the state nursing um, organizations as well as the hospital committees. And then and we have that kind of interspersed within our group as well. Um, and some uh, staff members are involved with STN, um, with the PA organization. So, um, but just at a global level, um, we've, we've kind of um, probably because our paradigm is critical care and trauma critical care, we have, um, you know, we have a lot of ACPs that fall into the EAST support, yeah. and then we have a, another group that fall into SCCM and the critical care um, venue.